to the identity of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this morning we're going to read John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let us pray. Father, I want to thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ our Lord. Lord, I pray for them and I pray for myself as well. Lord, during this time that we are in your word, that your spirit would move mightily among us. Lord, each day we experience your grace and mercy and Lord, I pray that you would Help us to remember that when your word is read and explained accurately, that too is a work of your grace among us. And so, Lord, I pray that each person in this room, Lord, would be receptive to that grace. Lord, for believers, that we would be strengthened in our faith. Lord, that our love for you would grow. Our desire to proclaim your gospel would be strengthened. And Lord, for those who do not believe, Lord, that today you would open their eyes and hearts to the truth. Lord, that they would see that their only hope is in Christ who gave his life to redeem them. So do your work among us, Lord, that the name of Christ would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the earliest books that I ever read by the uh, late R.C. Sproul uh, was a book that he wrote, I believe, back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s, uh, in response to something that was going on in Catholicism. And it was a book entitled, Getting the Gospel Right. And at this point, I, I had heard a few of his sermons and, and read a few things uh, by him, articles, but uh, I, I'd never really sat down to, to dig into 
one of his books, and it was life-changing for me in how clearly and uh, precisely R.C. Sproul could articulate the gospel and also explain some of the most uh, confusing things at the time for me about Christianity. And one of the things that we need to get right when it comes to the gospel is our understanding of who Jesus is. Right? I mean, if we're going to to, to, to understand how it is that we can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ and in his life and his death and, and resurrection for our sins, we, we need to understand a little something about the identity of this one who has done all this in order to redeem us. Amen? Well, here in John chapter 1, we have seen John the Apostle go to great lengths to to, to record the early days of Jesus' ministry in such a way that, that we would have no confusion concerning who Jesus is. We're in a section where we are being introduced to to really six different titles that were given to the Lord by those who encountered him in these first days of his ministry. Last week, we we, we looked at, at three. The first was the Lamb of God. The second was Rabbi or, or, or the Great Teacher. And then the final was Messiah. All three important titles that describe who Jesus is. Last week, in the beginning of the message, we we focused on Jesus as the Lamb of God, as he was first presented and pictured in the Old Testament, and then Jesus the Lamb of God in his sacrifice. And then, if you were here, you remember I closed by focusing on the Lamb victorious, as he exists today in heaven, the object of, uh, of the worship of saints and angels alike. The Lamb victorious who will return to wipe away every tear and to bring the end to all crying and mourning and death and pain. It was a powerful reminder of of the God whom we serve. In our passage today, we are introduced to Three more titles for our Lord, as recorded by John the Apostle. And those are our three points today. We're going to consider Jesus as the one of whom Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets also spoke about. We'll see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. Secondly, we're going to consider... Jesus as the Son of God, and then we're going to close with Jesus as the King of Israel, or the promised King. And you'll see that as we work through these verses this morning, uh, that they are very closely tied with what we saw last week, as Jesus is predict- or, or pre- set forth, presented as the Messiah, the promised one sent from God to redeem a people for God. And it's my prayer that that as we 
see Jesus as John sets him forth in this narrative, uh, that, that our worship of our Lord would grow, that our confidence in him would grow, that our faith would grow, especially as we face difficult times. And I'm going to challenge you this morning in regards to your faithfulness to him as well. So buckle up. But let's begin by first considering verses 43 through 45. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. Now, as, as, I, as we've read through this uh, second half of, of John chapter 1, we see that things really are picking up speed in the early days of Jesus' ministry. Uh, first, we saw uh, earlier on that John the Baptist interacting with the religious delegation that had been sent by the Sanhedrin uh, from Jerusalem. And, and if you were here, you remember that John made it clear that he was not the Messiah, but that the Messiah was in their midst. That's in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. The next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus again and announces that he is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. He says this to a, a, a larger audience. That's John chapter 1, 29 through 34. The day after that, John again points out Jesus to his disciples as the Lamb of God, which led to Andrew and an unnamed disciple, probably John, choosing to follow Jesus. And ultimately, we saw that Peter, too, would be brought into the mix. That's John 1, 35 through 42. So the next day, and the next day, and the next day, these things are happening. And, and here in, in verse 43, we see that it's yet another day. And also a calling of a new group of people to become his disciples. We, we, we see in verse 43 that, that, that Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he finds Philip there and he utters a simple invitation. Follow me. Now, we learned last week that the Greek word that John uses that's translated follow actually means or can mean to, to follow as a disciple. To be his follower. And in fact, as you look at verse 43, it's, it's in the Greek, it's in what's known as the imperative tense, which means that it can also be understood as a command. Jesus says, Philip, follow me. With the understanding that Philip's going to do what? Follow him. It's an invitation, but it is one that is loaded with expectation. And, and that call to follow Jesus continues to this day, brothers and sisters. An honest reading of the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the call to salvation in Christ is a call to a life of discipleship, following Him. Each Christian in this room is called to follow Jesus as his disciple. 
And we need to be honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters. Too often we have a backward understanding of the Christian life. Where we basically try to fit Jesus into our lives and our schedules, seeking to bend his will to our agendas. But this is not what the Bible teaches in relation to discipleship. That invitation when someone shared the gospel with you, that time that you believed, it was not just an invitation to have your sins forgiven, but it was a call to respond in faith to the one who gave his life to redeem you and to follow him. And even if you did not hear those words then, you are hearing them clearly today. The Bible's expectation is that everyone who responds in faith to the gospel will follow him. I'll give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is warning the Corinthians against engaging in their former worship of false gods. In this case, it would have been engaging in temple worship with prostitutes. You guys can fill in the blanks. And Paul concludes his exhortation for them to reject that way of worldly living with these words. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, we may not have a former religion of, of, of worshiping in the temple with prostitutes, but our lives were marked by sin and shame. We live in a culture that glorifies sin and shame. And so the words of Paul echo down to us. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your bodies. This is what it means to follow Him, brothers and sisters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul's not done. He again reminds the Corinthians of the great price that Jesus paid to save them. In this instance, Paul is challenging the church to be faithful in their present circumstances. If they were Gentiles, don't adopt Jewish practices in your worship. If they were married, stay married. If they were single, stay single. If they were were slaves, stay slaves unless they could legally obtain their freedom. And in verse 3, he says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Don't become slaves to men and their expectations. Jesus paid a price to set you free from all of that. And Paul's point, I hope, is abundantly clear to us all. Jesus paid the ultimate price to save us. And we must live in a way that honors him, brothers and sisters. Now, we know, because we've read the Gospels before, that that this is a lesson that would take the disciples a long time to learn. But let's be honest, the same can be true for us as well. 
as his followers, we must understand that Jesus has purchased the right to lead us. Some Christians buck what I'm about to say. But you need to understand that in the words I'm about to utter to you come great joy and freedom. By virtue of the price that Jesus paid to redeem us with his very life, Jesus lays absolute claim and authority over every area of your life. And that is freeing. There is joy in that reality. Because let's be honest, when we live for ourselves, the outcome typically ain't too great, is it? So, so don't hear that statement as an American say, well, I got my freedom. Oh, no. Oh, no, brother Christian, sister Christian, we do not. We do not have that freedom. We are set free to to live for His glory. We're set free to to, to follow Him because the the, the bondage and and the cruel master that sin was in our life has been broken. But we are not free to do whatever we want. When we think that way, we are not thinking as His disciples. Disciples. Now, this was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but we must get our priorities straight, brothers and sisters. If we are to follow him as the Bible intends, then that involves, for many of us, a reorienting of our priorities. And again, let me just... Stick this in because I know that we are all closet legalists to some degree or another. This is not the way to earn God's favor and his love. He has lavished that on us freely in Christ. This is the path to faithfulness and joy in him, brothers and sisters. So so let's not embrace it begrudgingly, but let's embrace it in faith and joy, recognizing that his ways truly are the best ways. And in following Him, there is nothing that we will lose that compares to what we've gained in Christ. There are brothers and sisters seated among us who have been through severe trials. And to a person, each believer would tell you that it's worth it compared to Christ and knowing Him. So upon heeding the call to follow him, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, we touched on this a bit last week, this idea of, of Jesus being pictured and, and, and presented the Son of God in the Old Testament, especially as we considered him as the Lamb of God. We, we, we see him in the, in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We see him as the, the Passover Lamb and so on. But we need to understand that this is not the only way that, that Christ is present or even prefigured in the Old Testament. Look at 
In Genesis chapter 12, and you might, like last week, want to write these references down rather than trying to turn there so you can go back later and reread. But in Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham that through his seed, God would uh, bless and rule the nations. And by seed, he means a descendant. And that promised descendant is Jesus, the Messiah. Let's go back even further to the Garden of Eden. You know the story, Adam and Eve fell. And and in God's judgment upon them and the serpent, we also see the promise of restoration in Genesis chapter 3. God promises to raise up from the seed of the woman one who would crush the head of the serpent, the devil. That's Jesus. That's Jesus, brothers and sisters. As we read the law of God in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, it reveals the need for a redeemer. And the sacrificial system was a was a picture of a greater redemption that would come through a greater sacrifice. That's Jesus. The prophets in the Old Testament also point us to Jesus. Daniel chapter 7 paints the picture of one who is coming to rule and reign over the nations. She refers to him as the Son of Man, a title we hear in this very passage in John. That's Jesus. The the prophet Isaiah predicts the virgin birth, the suffering and the sacrifice of the one who was sent to redeem the people. That's Jesus. And I could go on and on with examples. But, But let's hear an account where Jesus himself makes that same case. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. I'll set the stage for you. Sounds that bad, huh? Thank you. (laughs) On the day of the resurrection, two of the disciples were on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus appears to them, although his identity was hidden from them. Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. Now listen to this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Jesus' death, the report from Mary and the other ladies that that, that the tomb was empty. And this is while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
Though we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But, he did, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, sound familiar? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Philip, to Nathaniel, come see, come and see. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, one of the most common misunderstandings among religious people, and I don't say Christians because many people hold this view are still in their sin, is that they think something changes with God between the Old and New Testament. God of the Old Testament is is wrathful and angry, but in the New Testament, He is merciful. That's that's not true. That's, That's what you smell when you're driving past fields as it relates to God. He is no different. It's manure. God does not change. And and in the Old Testament, we see the stage being set for the life and ministry of the Lord. This statement by Philip is full of messianic implications. And as we study the rest of the Gospel of John, we must understand that this is a key theme of the gospel. He writes the rest of the gospel in such a way to show us that Jesus is indeed who Philip testified that he was. He is the one that Moses writes about. He is the one that the prophets speak of. The Son of God was present and pictured throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus is that Son of God. John wants there to be no confusion concerning the identity of Jesus, brothers and sisters, and we cannot be confused ourselves. So He is the focus and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When Moses led the people from the promised land, there, there, there was a rock from which water sprang forth to give life to the people. That's a picture of Christ who gives life to us, His people. Read the Old Testament brothers and sisters. Read it with an eye to Jesus. Jesus, read it to have your faith informed. Read it and behold your God. 
Verses 45 through 49, we see Jesus presented as the Son of God. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. (laughs) Philip shows up uh, announcing to Nathanael that they found the, the Messiah and it is met with skepticism by Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, ancient Israel was similar to Lancaster County in a very interesting way, I think. Various towns and villages held a level of animosity toward one another. Now, we know it's true, right? People in the city looked down on people in the river towns, while certain, area, certain other areas looked down on everyone else. We've joked about it. We've had those conversations, have we not? And things were no different in ancient Israel. No one wants to be at the bottom of the totem pole, so we disparage others. In ancient Israel, the the Judeans looked down on the Galileans, who themselves looked down on the people from Nazareth. And so... Nathaniel, being a good Galilean, couldn't imagine anyone significant coming from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Marietta? Philip's response is clear. Come and see uh, another invitation that would lead to a changed life. In in verse 47, Jesus makes quite the first impression on Nathanael. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. C.H. Spurgeon points out that Nathanael was obviously a man who spoke his mind. And for Jesus to recognize that, without ever having spoken with him, caught him off guard. Nathaniel was an open book of sorts, and if you know anybody like that, you know it can be a good thing and it can be not so good. And for Jesus to know this about him, having never met him, led to the question from Nathaniel, how do you know me? And Jesus' response is simple, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. Now, we all have questions that we want to ask when we get to heaven. Different situations, different circumstances. I, have, I imagine when we get there, we probably won't care. But I really want to ask Nathaniel what he was doing under the fig tree so that when Jesus said he saw him, he was so moved by this supernatural knowledge of the Lord. The scripture doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to speculate. But his response reflects 
his awe of what just took place. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now again, these are messianic titles as well. Philip referred to Jesus as the son of Joseph. But, but Nathaniel goes even further. He says, you are the son of God. Now, Nathaniel probably had the contemporary understanding of son of God in mind, which focused on the, the righteousness and the messianic link to David's kingdom. But we will see that John the Apostle is making a much bigger case for the identity of Jesus as we move forward in the gospel. As, we, as the gospel progresses, we will see Jesus' sonship linked to intimacy with the Father and also to his divine nature. D.A. Carson rightfully points out that, that with this phrase, you are the Son of God, Nathaniel is speaking much